one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome everybody to this very special episode of Talking Space. This is Talking Space episode 506, and it is also, despite the numbering, our 150th episode. Amazing, we've done 150 episodes over the last four and a half years, and we have some amazing people here to share it with us. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining us as always is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Sawyer, I have been looking forward to this all week since we knew this was going to get assembled, and we got the band back together again for this. This is going to be a fun night. Indeed, returning for this special episode is Gina Hurley. Welcome back. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We're doing great. Glad to have you with us. And also from our regular team is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Let's go. Indeed, let's go. Now, what makes this episode so special is indeed our special guest. Our guest tonight is a world record holder. Jerry Ross was selected as an astronaut in May of 1980 after getting an engineering degree from Purdue and spending time working with the Air Force on ramjet propulsion systems and after being a test pilot school flight engineer. After serving as a Capcom and working with crews training in the neutral buoyancy lab on spacewalk preparation, He was selected for his first flight, STS-61B, which launched in 1985. He also flew on STS-27, 37, 55, visited Mir on STS-74, delivered the first American part of the International Space Station on STS-88, and visited the ISS on STS-110, giving him the record for most space flights with seven. On top of that, he's also in third place on the all-time spacewalking list with nine, totaling 58 hours and 18 minutes. On top of that, he served as the chief of the Vehicle Integration Test Office from 2003 till 2011. After supporting the final shuttle flight, he retired from NASA in January of 2012. And he can now add author to his long biography with his new book, Spacewalker, My Journey in Space and Faith as NASA's record-setting frequent flyer, which is available now. Please welcome to the show, astronaut Jerry Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, we're honored to have you here, and I think we'll start off questions with Gene. Yes, sir. First off, Jerry Ross, thank you very, very much for uh, for joining us tonight. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I picked up the book over the weekend uh, to go ahead and do my homework uh, for this interview tonight and uh, was, was going through it about maybe three-quarters of the way through. And, and it's a wonderful read. I mean, I, I had a real hard time putting it down on Sunday. Well, that's uh, nice to hear. Seriously, what what was the impetus for writing uh, for writing the book? First off, because you know, I mean, first off, I'm glad you did because it's I, I'm this is like right up there with uh, Tom Jones's book and uh, and Mike Belaine's. I mean, I, this was just fantastic read. Seriously, 
Oh, great. I, you know, I've uh, talked to people for some time about why I did it, and I guess it's boiled down to about five different reasons. First of all, I've uh, always tried to concentrate on talking to school kids when I was going out as a, as a live astronaut uh, talking uh, about NASA's programs. And I, the reason I tried to focus on school kids is because I wanted to try to get them excited about their lives and what they could do with their lives if they applied themselves. And I would start out by telling them that they were unique individuals, that they had a certain set of uh, unique gifts and likes and dislikes from God, and that the better that they could understand what those those uh, talents and gifts were and how they might apply those in their adult lives to be in line with God's plan for them, the, the better off they would be, the more fun they would have in life, and the better they would do whatever it was that they followed as a, as a career life. Um, and then I, I've tried to tell them through my own experiences in my life, and it's what's in recorded in the book is that you know, once you've figured out what that is you want to do and you set some goals for yourself, then you need to apply yourself in school and to study hard, and you need to uh, work hard towards those goals and to not give up too easily. I point out quite frequently in the book uh, where things didn't go quite as planned, or I didn't make, I wasn't successful the first time I tried something, or, or the fact that I wasn't a straight A student. That I had to start study hard and I had to work hard for my grades, which I think is important because I had friends who school was easy for them, but yet when they got off to college or elsewhere, they had to apply themselves earlier and hadn't learned those types of uh, study and work habits that uh, that helped carry me through. So I, I want them to understand all those things. I want them to understand that they are unique and special, and they're not all going to be astronauts, but they all have talents and gifts that are going to lead to some successful career if they'll figure those out and apply themselves. Uh, next, I just wanted to tell people what it's like to ride on a rocket and what is it like to, to walk in space. Uh, it's an incredible experience, and not too many people have had the, the good fortune to experience that, and certainly not the number of times I have. So... I wanted to help them understand that, what that was like. And in addition, uh, I wanted them to uh, see the more human side of, of space flyers. I wanted them to uh, enjoy some of the behind-the-scenes stories and, and some of the humorous things that have happened throughout my career. And certainly, I wanted to share how, uh, how God has uh, led me through my career and how he has helped me uh, at various different steps along the way. And also, the, uh, I wanted them to understand that uh, I had a confirmation of all that on my third space shuttle flight when I was outside on a spacewalk, and I had a what I guess I would call an epiphany. And finally, um, I, I have three young granddaughters. Uh, none of them were old enough to really understand what was going on when I was still flying in space. So I wanted to leave some kind of a record for them in Grandpa's own words of, of what he did when he was uh, flying and working with NASA. Incredible record indeed, and I, you know, reading the book, there's there's a lot of encouragement in there, and 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 so on. And as you said, there was a lot of examples of of uh, of you know things just not going right. And I kind of wish I had that message too, because I think things might have been a little different at this end had uh, had I had a mentor around like yourself. So thanks. So thanks. Okay, um, I, I guess one other part of the story is that sometimes uh, God doesn't give you what you want or what you think you want because it's not part of his plan. And I, I think sometimes people get too upset if things don't go well, and I think it's, it's uh, important that you don't overreact to things and you just kind of let, let things play out a little bit and see where things lead sometimes. Yeah, exactly. 
one of the devices that you employ in the book, and I, I'd have to, it's one of the, my, my favorite parts of this is you have other, you know, family members and things, you know, folks like that chiming in. And, and was that your idea to do that? Or, or was that the, uh, the, the, your, your co-writer's idea? You know, where did that come from? That was uh, mostly uh, from my co-author. Uh, John uh, Norberg had uh, done a series of interviews with me and my family members and friends, and uh, he had all these little uh, snippets that, uh, that he had uh, transcribed from the uh, recorded interviews, and he had put some of those into the earlier drafts of the book, and, and I really liked them. I thought they added a lot of insight uh, through other people's eyes into what was happening, and I even learned some things reading some of them. So I thought it was uh, would be of value and interest to other people. And, and, in fact, I've had quite a bit of feedback from other readers of the book that they really enjoyed those as well. Yeah, and it, it really, really, you, you're giving the, the, the human side of things, and that's, that's what I'm, my takeaway is from, from, from the book thus far. And the addition of having the family members, I think, really, really, really hits that home. So that was, that was an, an exquisite idea. One thing that you mentioned and that I've noticed in both the book and even just listening to you is your ability to throw in a sense of humor. And I, I caught myself laughing out loud many times while reading this. And it's a very fine balance, I notice, especially when talking about spaceflight, between trying to do the somber, the serious, and the humor. But right now, I do want to focus on the humor. What were some of the most humorous moments in your career? Well, certainly one of the funniest ones that happened on orbit was on my third space shuttle flight, where we were testing some new hardware that I had, in fact, had uh, suggested be included in the uh, design of the International Space Station. Uh, we had uh, incorporated the hardware into a, uh, a test uh, spacewalk, and after we had done that, then I was an assigned to the crew and helped to develop the hardware and to actually uh, conduct the tests on, on orbit. Uh, the piece of hardware I'm talking about was call, called a CETA uh, card, or Crew Equipment Translation Aid. It was basically uh, a little cart that would go up and down the front face of the truss of the space station uh, on a kind of like a railroad track. And it was uh, designed to uh, help the spacewalking crew members to transport themselves and equipment and tools to uh, the work sites along the truss uh, quickly, expeditiously, and to then give them a work platform to do the work. The very earliest versions of that that we tested on STS-37 were, were pretty small. And we, we flew three different kinds of uh, carts. Uh, one was the manual cart, which was uh, the one that I had proposed originally, which basically was uh, just a foot restraint mounted to a little tr a cart that would go up and down the track. And then you just held on to the rails and kind of pulled yourself up and down and, and then uh, grabbed onto the rails to stop yourself. The, the second one was uh, more of a, a railroad hand car type of cart that was a mechanical device, and you would you would pump up and down on a handle, and it would drive a gear train that would drive the cart up and down the track, and then you could brake yourself to a stop. And finally, the third one was an electrical cart. It was a, a hand crank generator that you could rotate the handles on to generate electrical power, which would then drive an electric motor and propel the cart up and down the track. We were able to do the testing of the manual cart and the mechanical cart 
in the water tank uh, where we would do our training for spacewalks. But obviously the electric cart with uh, generators and motors in it wasn't suitable to being put into the water in its uh, fully operational configuration. So we would uh, just m talk to the, the uh, divers that were there with us in the water tank and tell them what we wanted to do, and then we would go through the motions of rotating the generator, and they would move us up and down the track. Well, uh, this, this cart also had a parking brake on it. And when we got onto orbit, um, I started trying to drive the cart up and down the track, and it wasn't moving at all. Of course, in the water tank, you never set the parking brake because it didn't work, and the generator didn't work either. So on orbit, I'm, I'm sitting there cranking on this cart, and it's not going anywhere, and I'm going, what in the world is wrong with this thing? And in fact, I was cranking on the generator so hard that the crew members inside the orbiter told me after the spacewalk that I was actually shaping the entire orbiter, and it was vibrating. I cranked it so hard that I got tired, and so I said, okay, I'm going to take a break, and I'll try one more time. And while I'm taking the break, I look down and I go, yeah, oh, yeah, there's the parking brake handle. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took the parking brake handle and moved it to the off position. And when I rotated the hand crank on a generator, the cart moved easily up and down the track. So if I'd have been a little bit quicker, I would have said, well, the parking brake works. Now let me see about the, track, the cart itself. But I wasn't that quick. And I had to admit that I had not released the parking brake and the uh, I got quite a bit of grief from the crew, uh, not only during the mission, but uh, well after the mission when we would go out on uh, public appearances and talk and everything else. So it was a lot of fun. At least you didn't get a nickname from that. Uh, no, you try to avoid nicknames. That's something that's uh, not good. <laughs> exactly. I guess another one uh, that's a pretty good one is uh, on my uh, sixth uh, shuttle flight, doing the, the start of the assembly of the International Space Station, I was testing out a new pair of, uh, of gloves on our spacewalk suits, spacewalking suits that, was, uh, that were worked on by my daughter, Amy. She had done a lot of the final engineering and uh, certification work on the gloves, and uh, I was the first person to actually use them on orbit. And uh, they had given me a, a pair of the new gloves, a pair of the older gloves, and I was supposed to wear the uh, new gloves on one spacewalk, the old gloves on another spacewalk, and then I'm given the option on which ones I would wear on the third spacewalk. Uh, actually, I wore the, the new gloves on all three spacewalks, but I didn't say anything about the gloves until well into the third spacewalk when I had an opportunity to uh, tell the ground and, and my daughter Amy. Uh, I said something to the effect, uh, tell Amy the, the new gloves work great. And uh, the commentator there in uh, mission control said uh, something to the effect, uh, and what uh, what Jerry Ross is referencing is a pair of comfort gloves that his daughter Amy had knit for him to wear underneath his spacewalking gloves. And, of course, <laughs> my daughter just about came unglued uh, watching the TV and having the commentator say something was totally, totally wrong. You know, she put in a lot of hard work in school and was an engineer, and she wasn't in the knitting thing. She was in the engineering and developing things. So, of course, uh, I didn't know any of that was going on until after the flight, but my daughter had the repercussions of it. All of her co-workers, when uh, my daughter had stayed at the Cape for the launch and then all the way through the landing, and uh, when she came home to her office, it was literally covered with reams of, uh, of uh, yarn and uh, knitting needles. <laughs> no slack. I've noticed it seems that way a lot, where they don't cut any slack. 
it's it's part of having fun. It really is. It's uh, any time that you show a little bit of weakness, somebody's going to jump right up. Obviously, um, you're quite a family man, and it's it's rather probably unusual to have a child working with you in in this industry. But describe what it was like for your family, your wife, your children, seven launches, probably seven, more than seven times, I'm sure, up to the top of the roof to watch a launch and just the incredible effort and energy and emotion that the family has to use to prepare every time you know, dad went into space and what it was like all of those times and all of those trips. And by the time you were up there on the seventh time, was this fairly routine or was each time, you know, as riveting and as stressful and as nail biting as, as the first? Well, that's probably a, a better question to ask my wife and kids. But uh, from what they've told me that after the first time, it became a little bit easier because they at least knew what to expect and what the routine would be and everything. But you know, certainly I I still had a lot of the anticipation and anxieties of watching my friends fly in space when I was on the roof with uh, their families and, and escorting them and things like I did, especially for the last 10 years. But uh, it's it's a nervous time. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a certain edge or a certain tension when uh, when you're seeing your spouse for the last time or what you expect to be the last time before the actual launch. And, and it's... Uh, you know there's a risk. Uh, I've always known that there's a risk of flying in airplanes or flying in space. But I've always felt that the uh, the risk versus uh, benefit trade for me was was always a valid one. I always felt like uh, what we were doing on our space uh, flights was of, of value, uh, not only to, to our country but to all mankind, and that, uh, that somebody needed to take the risk to be able to push back the unknown boundaries and to, to help us progress into the future and have uh, the capabilities to uh, treat illnesses and to explore the unknown in the future. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, supporting your colleagues and being an escort for some of your colleagues' families. Can you describe what it was like perhaps in the astronaut office? Um, You know, I'm using the analogy of a baseball game as it gets to be a no-hitter and the stands kind of go quiet as they realize the sixth, seventh, eighth inning is happening and we don't have a hit yet. When you were getting assigned your fourth, fifth, sixth space flight, you know, looks like you were going to fly more times than some of the other guys or gals in the office. What was the tone like? Was this, you know, hey, Jerry, way to go, or oh, darn, he got assigned again and I'm still on the ground? Yeah, there's there's a little bit of both of those in there, I think. But I think uh, there's, there's a lot of competition it's not an outright you know fist fighting kind of competition but there's always people who are that are there in the office and they want to fly and you know i mean i would have liked to have flown every flight if they'd given me the option there's no doubt about it but i but at the same time there is a lot of camaraderie and there is a lot of mutual support throughout my astronaut career i was very fortunate to start with uh spacewalking hardware and training issues and developing suits and and techniques and i got to stay in that basically my entire career, partly because uh, I think I was good at it, but also that that was what I really liked, and that was that was my cup of tea. So uh, in particular, the thing that I think was uh, most uh, interesting was the fact that uh, I got to develop the techniques of how we were going to evaluate building the International Space Station and uh, 
And in fact, I use some old flight test techniques of developing uh, a rating system by which we could evaluate uh, the various different tasks uh, using, uh, normally we would have three teams of two crew members that would do each of the evaluations, and then we would rate each thing separately and then come back together as a team to uh, give our recommendations to the program, to the station program office on whether or not the tasks were doable or if they needed to be modified uh, and, and things like that. So I, I would uh, get teams together of two people each, and I would always try to get a mix of experience levels, a mix of anthropomorphic sizes so that we didn't bias towards big or small end of the spectrum. And we would always try to uh, make sure that we were looking at things from the perspective that we probably weren't going to be the ones doing the task, but we want to make sure that whatever astronaut crew was assigned would have a, uh, a very good uh, uh, possibility of being able to complete all the tasks in a time allotted uh, and have a high degree of probability of success. So your unique training and skill set, obviously, you were in the right spot at the right time, absolutely at the development of the station where it was, and your background with developing spacewalking techniques. Um, I, I was um, pleasantly surprised to hear that you originally um, started out training other astronauts at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. So um, I guess I would love to know if, you know, as a trainer, as someone that's been on both sides of the coin as a trainer and an astronaut, um, because I, I, th- I think you probably already sort of answered what I was originally going to ask you was how did your ability to be the trainer set you up as an astronaut? And I think you've you've have certainly just asked answered that question. After you flew in space, how did that experience alter how you came back and trained for subsequent missions or helped other astronauts train? Okay, well, I I think I was pretty well prepared for the spacewalk first spacewalks. I had done a lot of training on the ground. I had done a lot of developmental work on hardware, and I'd have helped uh, multiple other crews go do their spacewalks. I was a capsule communicator for them on the ground. Uh, so I had a pretty good understanding of what it was going to take to do the spacewalks. Uh, and it was a combination of uh, uh, adding what I did in the water tanks to what I did doing the hardware testing and evaluation in our KC-135 airplane, which gave us uh, about 20 seconds of uh, zero-G time per parabola. Uh, and uh, as I think most of you are aware, we called that airplane the Vomit Comet for, mm-hmm. for very good reasons. Oh, yeah. So, But, but by comparing or by uh, adding the two together between getting zero-gravity time in the airplane and doing the water tank work, I would have had a pretty good handle on what it was going to take to work in space and what it would feel like. But certainly, all that, uh, the unknowns or the uncertainties are erased when you actually get to go do spacewalks in, in, in the real elements. And it gives you a much higher level of confidence that you, what you thought you knew, you do in fact know. And, and there were probably some little surprises that were, that were pointed out to me as I was doing it, but it became some second nature that that's all evaporated now. But it, it was a, a great uh, help to me to be able to find ways to coach uh, new crew members on, on ways that they might be able to uh, learn how to do certain certain things. Uh, most of the things are pretty straightforward, but when you're working in a pressure suit and you can't see very much and you can't feel very well with that big bulky suit, 
uh, certain things like getting in on foot restraints and things like that are difficult to do. And so I developed some techniques that helped me to do that, and I was able to pass those on to the other crew members. And it was delightful to watch them uh, progress from being pretty awkward and clumsy in a suit to, to getting to be pretty proficient uh, spacewalkers by the time they flew. Jerry, could you contrast, you're talking about the training and spaceflight and your experiences there. Could you contrast that with uh, the the regular uh, Monday through Friday, perhaps going to work type part of your career? Sure. Uh, people always uh, ask me what it was like to go to work on a normal day, and I would tell them really there's almost hardly ever what I would consider a normal day. Every day was different. Uh, you didn't know if you're going to be in a, in a, in a spacesuit or if you're going to be going flying on a T-38 or if you're going to be going to meetings. Uh, I've had some days where I've uh, changed in uh, five, six times in a day between various different suits or or getting ready for different types of tests and things. It, it's it's what made life very interesting and, and never got boring because there was always something new and different and challenging. And each one of my flights was different, and each time I had another job that I was helping to develop hardware or the techniques or uh, watching other people get ready to go and, and helping them, uh, it was always different. And that, that was what made things so exciting. And I guess the, the, the other best part of the job was that everybody that I was associated with, everybody I worked with, they all thought that they had the best jobs in the world and that they were came to work every day just as excited and energized as I was. And that, that is a uh, daydream, uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of thing that you don't find happen anywhere else. And it was, it was a marvelous 30 years plus that I got to, to live in that and work in that environment. It sounds like you were a really good fit for the job, and the job was a really good fit for you. Absolutely. i got another question. This is about the spaceflight side of things. I'm trying to visualize some of what it would be like to be in microgravity. What's it feel like when there's a a, a longer thruster firing in relation to what happens to you inside the the ship, and what's that like? Well, if you can assume uh, that you're just sitting there in the mid-deck of the orbiter and just kind of floating around, not touching anything, and the crew up on the flight deck fires one of the Ohm's engines, uh, the wall tends to move at you pretty quickly. And it's pretty neat. Um, on orbit, when we would fire one Ohm's engine, orbital maneuvering system engine, uh, that was one thirty-second of G. If you fired both of them simultaneously, that was one sixteenth of G. And, and yet that felt like a pretty substantial force that you were uh, being uh, uh, having to fight either by holding on to a strap so you didn't bounce into the wall or just allowing yourself to, to bang into the back wall and uh, sit there and, and try to counteract the forces pushing against it. So it was a pretty amazing experience, frankly. And, and the human body really does like zero gravity and really adapts to it very quickly. I think one of the best uh, examples of how I can tell you what that's like is my first shuttle flight was seven days long. We landed out at Edwards Air Force Base, and we went through a fairly extensive post-flight and medical and, uh, and a little press conference, and then we got on airplanes, and we flew three or four hours to get back to Houston, and then we had a little press conference out at the airport. 
And then I got in my truck and drove home, and uh, I was home sitting in our family room, and I was in my rocking chair. Uh, I was telling my mom and dad and the rest of my family what it was like. And uh, I'll never forget that one of the neighbors rang the doorbell. And after I hadn't been in the room for seven days and ever having been back on the ground for quite a few hours, um, I was all ready to position myself to push off from my rocking chair and float over to the front door and let them in. And, of course, I caught myself prepared to do that and kind of shook my head and got up and walked over to the door and let them in. That's quite good. That uh, that really indicates what our our even a habit for a short period of time how that affects you. It's pretty amazing. Speaking of habit, I, when it comes to the orbiters themselves, I mean, you, you flew seven times, but when it came down to the orbiters, you flew on. If I remember correctly, it was Atlantis, Columbia, and Endeavor. Did do you happen to notice a difference between the way that any of the orbiters acted or if there were any quirks from one orbiter to the other and I know Atlantis you flew on her five times but if you knew any difference between the three of them you know actually um, the orbiters inside pretty much look the same Columbia was slightly different it had some some uh, differences in it but not major ones but I'll tell you the thing that was most different about the vehicles was, was uh, dependent upon what was in the payload bay of the orbiter during launch uh, on several of my flights, I had a what would be uh, termed in some ways almost like a pogo effect, a longitudinal oscillation in the G-force, not a big oscillation uh, in magnitude, but, but there was one there. And on other flights, basically, you couldn't feel anything. It was just a very smooth uh, ride up other than the, the normal vibration and uh, from the solid rocket motors. Uh, and, and, you know, I asked about that, and then they said, well, that was to be expected, and that was because of the the type of uh, payloads in the payload bay, their center of masses, where they were located, how they were mounted in, to the launch rounds of the payload bay and all that. And that was probably the, the most significant uh, difference I felt. The, the other one was that Atlantis really had quite a bit of transonic uh, vibration uh, as you were going from supersonic to subsonic during the uh, the reentry and landing process, and it really felt like uh, as you went from maybe Mach 1.1, 1.2 down to maybe Mach 0.9 or so, uh, the vibration in the vehicle was quite quite uh, surprising and um, got my attention the first couple times I felt it. It kind of felt like you were driving down a uh, railroad track and bouncing on the railroad tracks uh, at a fairly fast speed. A lot of noise associated with it, as well as the vibration. Pretty impressive, right? That's something that you don't normally expect, is that the payload would affect the way that the shuttle behaves, so that's interesting. I guess I guess one other time on my, uh, my fourth flight, uh, we had a space lab uh, in the payload bay, as it were, where we had a long tunnel that went between the airlock and the, the uh, space lab itself. And on the top of that tunnel, there was a hatch that could go out into the tail bay if you needed to do a spacewalk. And uh, there was a cover on that hatch that uh, flopped open when we were in three Gs of uh, acceleration just before engine cutoff. And I was sitting down the mid-deck not too far from the hatch in the airlock, on the airlock, and uh, I got everybody's attention. It was a pretty noisy event, and uh, all we could do was just kind of hang out and make sure nothing else happened. 
In terms of the payloads, uh, one of the major payloads you, that you had was on STS-88 when you had the pretty much the start of the International Space Station. So you flew to Mir, and then you were there for the inception of it, and you also visited again on one of your last flights. So what was the difference that you saw from Mir to the start of the space station to what it was when you visited, and how does it compare now to where you thought it would be? Okay, well, going to Mir on uh, STS-74, which was my fifth flight, was really an exciting event for me because it was going to some place in space, some place that was already there, and, and in fact, it was already it was manned. There were people living there, and something that had been in space for quite a while. So it was quite exciting uh, to me to be able to go do that. All my other flights had been you know, free-flying flights in the shuttle with no other vehicles close by other than satellites or things like that we, that we launched. So that was a pretty neat event, and to uh, to go visit uh, Russia and to train on their hardware and to uh, to work out the details of the, the mating process for the docking module that we added to the station and all that was was quite an adventure. It was really a, a neat thing to do, and of course there was a German and two Russians on board the, the station when we got up there, and uh, they were a great host. We uh, thoroughly enjoyed our tours of, of Amir and. Uh, exchanging gifts and uh, transferring uh, hardware to, to the orbiter. So that was, that was a great experience. And, and of course, uh, you know, we added the docking module to Mir so the future shuttles could dock there more safely and not have to get quite so close to solar arrays and antennas and stuff that, that were sticking out at all angles and, and locations from the Mir station itself. So that was a pretty neat event. Um, it was a real honor, frankly, to be included on the crew to start the assembly of the International Space Station. And, uh, of course, uh, we uh, got together as a crew at the Bob Cabana's house uh, one evening. Um, and that was the evening that, uh, that uh, the first capital of the station was going to be launched from Russia. And we were watching um, on TV, and it was fairly late in the evening, here in Houston, by the time that, uh, that the FGB uh, Zarya launched, and uh, when we uh, all heard that uh, Zarya had safely made it to orbit, we had uh, a good celebration, knowing that our flight would be a goal on, on, on the time line as planned, and, and so that we had to redouble our efforts for the next several weeks to make sure we were ready for our part of the flight. And then to, uh, to launch uh, on STS-88 with the the Nogue 1 in the payload bay with the pressurized bidding adapters on each end. And that's uh, the complex that we were carrying up as the, the first U.S. Uh, parts of the International Space Station. And then we conducted a rendezvous with Zarya and uh, grappled it and uh, added it to the, uh, the U.S. node, the two pressurized bidding adapters we brought up. And then Jim, Jim and I did uh, three spacewalks to uh, electrically couple up everything and had a lot of hard work at the outside of the station and actually did some repairs on uh, the Russian uh, side of some problems that they had there and left a lot of additional uh, hardware and tools on the station for future crews to use. And and then, of course, uh, we got to go inside the station for uh, parts of a couple of days anyhow and to uh, start the uh, activation of the systems and a checkout of some systems and removing a lot of, uh, of hardware that no longer needed to be there once it was in orbit. All tremendous experiences, and to be 
in on the the very first uh, assembly flight was was very uh, gratifying to me. And then on STS-110, the opportunity to go back up to the International Space Station with it now being staffed with crew members and having grown considerably from uh, what I had left it on the, after the first assembly flight was really neat again. And, of course, this flight was uh, where we started the uh, installation of all the truss helmets on the front of the, of the International Space Station. We carried up S0, which was in many ways, I would say, akin to the the boiler room of the station. It had over 10 miles of wire and some, I think, some like 660 electrical connectors and and the plumbing for the, the fluid lines that were to carry the coolant to and from the radiators. Uh, very complex piece of hardware, 44 feet long, and that weighed, uh, I think, about 35,000 pounds. And, of course, that was the center section of the truss, uh, only 44 feet long, but the truss is now over 330 feet long, and it carries the, the radiators and get rid of all of the excess energy, uh, heat that's generated by the use of electrons and all the electronics in the station, and and those the very large eight solar arrays that uh, provide electrical power for the, uh, the U.S. section of the station. So it seems like it's come a very long way then from its initial couple of pieces. It has indeed, and in fact, on STS-110, when we got, I could hardly see the, the parts that we had left up there after the first assembly flight. And of course, you look at the pictures now of it completed the station, and it's it's pretty incredible. It's uh, you know it's approaching a million pounds of hardware that's it's up there and it's been functioning for many years now. It's doing great great things. And the crews continue to do some pretty good science up there as well. Okay, now, unfortunately, at this point, this is where it starts to get a little more serious in the questioning. But um, I'm associated with the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, and, you know, obviously they were founded after the Challenger disaster and have since been incorporated with the Columbia disaster, which I know you were a large part of, in, uh, especially with Columbia. How did that affect you, and did that affect your view at all of NASA and the space shuttle as a whole? Well, uh, I lost 14 good friends. Some of them I knew better than others, but they were all friends. And uh, the Challenger accident, uh, you know, El Onizuka was a good friend. I mean, we'd played softball together for many years, and and Judy Resnick and I had worked uh, on several things together, and and, uh, Dick Scobie and uh, had... I've been a friend out at Edwards before we even either one of us became astronauts, as said Ellison, and Mike Smith was in my class, and and you go down through the rest of them. I'd worked with uh, Ron McNair on his first flight, and I knew both of the payload specialists as well. So it was very tough, and uh, you know to, to lose your friends in such a, a uh, incredibly in-your-face manner you know, on on national TV is just something that's hard to express. Um, and I was, uh, I'd, I'd flown two flights before, uh, the Challenger accident. And in fact, at one time, our crew for STS-61B had been assigned to the STS-51L mission. So, you know, there's, there was a possibility for a period of time that we would have been on that flight. Uh, but, uh, fortunately for, for us, we were not. And, uh, I was already training for my second flight. Uh, which was to have been the first Vandenberg flight, military mission. 
and our crew was out in New Mexico um, at Los Alamos Labs training for the uh, the mission. And we were, we had a TV on in the corner of the uh, the training room with the sound turned down. We were just kind of trying to monitor the, the lunch, and every once in a while, one of us would look over to see if there was anything happening. And I'll never forget that uh, Dale Gardner, one of the mission specialists on our crew, glanced over the TV and he said, "What is that?" And of course, we all immediately turned to the TV, and, and we all had different. Uh, looks. At first, I thought the crew was doing our few months over here lunch site work. And of course, uh, I knew it wasn't true, but I didn't want to accept what was the real truth that I was staring at. Um, I, I immediately said a prayer for my friends, and uh, we, we stopped what we were doing and immediately made preparations to return to Houston. Um, I had a little bit of a head cold, so I flew out in a commercial, or not commercial, but a uh, Air Force uh, airplane. Pete Aldridge, who was then under secretary of the Air Force, was uh, trying to be a crew member on our, our uh, mission, and, and he had an Air Force airplane uh, standing by to take us back to Houston. It was, it was a very somber flight. It was uh, quiet. There wasn't much chatter going on. Uh, we kept encouraging the pilots to try to contact uh, whoever they could to Getting more information uh, about what was going on, we all held out hope against hope that uh, maybe some of the crew members might have survived. And I, uh, I said several prayers during the flight, and I was uh, starting to contemplate what that meant for my future and whether or not um, I should uh, stay in the program or not, because I had a young family at that time, and I was putting their futures at risk by continuing to fly, if that was what I chose to do. Uh, ultimately, I did, uh, we did sit down as a family and talk about it, and we all agreed that uh, to not c- continue on would be, uh, in some ways, uh, to say that our, our friends had lost their lives uh, for nothing. And, and uh, so that was not going to be what I was going to do. I was going to continue to follow on in our footsteps and try to make things better for the future. Um, I was not involved in the the aftermath of Challenger in terms of looking for the wreckage and and, and the teams that were uh, pursuing uh, what happened. And since I, I wasn't involved in that way, I, I decided that I would do what I could to help support the families. And so I volunteered to go to a lot of the memorial services and funerals and, and that sort of thing to represent the astronaut office from, from those uh, events. Uh, Columbia was uh, different in quite a few ways. Um, I was pretty much uh, done with my flying by then. I I was hoping that I might get another chance, possibly. Not very likely, but I was hoping that I would. And obviously, uh, when Columbia's accidents occur, I knew that was the end of my flying for sure then. But that wasn't on my mind at the time. I was, at that point on Columbia, I was... Uh, not directly in the astronaut office. I was uh, chief of the vehicle integration test team. And that was uh, a, a group of engineers who had been around since the, uh, really, Powell and Gemini days. It was a direct engineering support team through the astronaut office. And we were kind of a jack of all trade. We would uh, represent the crew when they couldn't be at some hardware test. Uh, we, I had to uh, team members that worked at the Cape that helped to uh, 
prepare the crew's uh, schedules and training and everything else for uh, a thermal countdown test and direct counts down there. Um, they would also be involved in helping the crew come down and do testing on their hardware or in to stand in when they couldn't. Uh, they also helped to uh, build the uh, checklist that the, the astronaut support personnel, other astronauts would use to uh, set up the cockpit switches and configure the vehicle per the crew's uh, specific needs or requests for each mission. Uh, in addition to that, I also then was responsible for operating the quarantine facilities at the Airstock Crew Corps, uh, where I had a team of uh, not only the crew, but uh, some of the trainers, all the suit technicians, the, uh, the dietitians, and food preparers, uh, the, the doctors, the flight doctors, uh, that was a whole team of people, the people who brought down the, the whole flight data file, all the checklists, everything else that go on board. Remember, we had a whole team of people that uh, operated on the crew quarters, including the astronaut support personnel who would set up the cockpit and help start the crew in. Um, I had had uh, another job down at the Cape where I was the lead astronaut for KSC operational support for several years. And as such, I had Mike Anderson working for me, and Mike's main responsibility was a very long and involved series of tests that we did on a lot of the early uh, station components. It was an integrated test of uh, all the hardware uh, that was in the U.S. laboratory and, and a lot of the associated equipment that attached uh, to it. And uh, we had uh, to try to uh, deal with around-the-clock testing seven days a week. And Mike was my guy. Many times he was the guy actually doing the testing, but he also coordinated the people coming to and from the test to, to assist him. And in addition, Dave Brown was uh, one of the guys that was one of the astronaut support personnel. And uh, Dave did a great job for me. And, and when it came time for the astronaut office to uh, consider who they were going to assign to the STS-107 mission, I asked both uh, Dave Brown and Mike Anderson if they would be interested in flying on that mission, and they both said yes. And I and I looked at the management structure in the astronaut office, and I gave them my highest recommendations that both of those guys should be included on the crew, which ultimately they were. And so, um, so I helped those guys get onto the crew. Uh, and then in my job as the vehicle integration testing uh, manager, I was waiting for them at the landing strip the day that they were coming home. I also flown to the Cape with them in a shuttle training airplane ahead of the mission because of the bad weather at the Cape. We decided to fly a business jet like airplane down there to the river. And of course, uh, I rode halfway off at the launch pad with them on the morning of lunch. And they got off to the Mission Control Center and was with their families uh, on the roof of the, of the Mission Control Center, Launch Control Center, rather, for the launch. I was standing outside the convoy commander's vehicle at the end of the runway waiting for the Columbia to arrive. And uh, I was with Bob Cabana there, who was uh, my boss. And at one point, somebody wrapped uh, inside the convoy commander's vehicle, wrapped down the window and waited for us to come in. 
And uh, they told us that Mission Control had just informed them that they had lost communication with the shuttle of Columbia. And that didn't get me too excited because that, that was something that was not OSA. And then shortly thereafter, they said they also had lost telemetry, which would be expected if they lose town, you're probably going to lose telemetry. And then shortly after that, they said that Mission Control had lost all tracking of the vehicle. And of course, at that moment, uh, I knew that uh, we had probably lost a vehicle, and, and based upon the, the video that we had seen during the launch phase of, of the mission, uh, I had a pretty good feeling for what might have caused the loss of the vehicle. And so I, uh, I quickly stepped outside of the convoy commander's vehicle, uh, said a silent prayer for my, my friends, and then called the uh, astronauts who were escorting the, the crew's families. They were waiting over at midfield along the side of the runway for the landing, and I told the uh, the escorts that uh, we needed to get the families back to the crew quarters as soon as possible, that uh, we had probably lost the vehicle, and uh, please get them back there as soon as possible. I then uh, called crew quarters and talked to uh, Judy Hooper and Lauren Lundy, who were the folks there working in the crew quarters and told them that we had probably lost the vehicle and we would be bringing the families back there into the crew conference room to please get security there, turn off the TVs and to lock down the facilities and get some food and, and drinks ready for the families once they got there. <clears throat> I then gathered up the, uh, the astronauts who were out there waiting for the landing, uh, the flight doctors and nurses and some of the other support people. And we, uh, got into the Astrovan and, and flew back to crew quarters and, in fact, beat the families back there. Uh, I went up to my office, turned on the TV to see what was going on, and I immediately started making some phone calls to arrange for airplanes and pilots to fly the families back to Houston. Uh, a little bit later, the families did arrive back at crew quarters, and I met them at the elevator and escorted them back to the conference room and I tried to... Uh, comfort them as much as I could and to uh, to get them where they needed. And, uh, but I was telling them that we didn't know what was going on. We didn't have enough information to tell them. About 15 minutes after they got back to crew quarters, then uh, finally um, Bob had a different information that he felt. Uh, it was time to go talk to the families, and I went with him into the conference room and and he broke the news to them, and of course, um, that said, hey, the field spin, again, we tried to do what we could to comfort them. Uh, I got people together, and I sent them down to uh, Cape Canaveral to, uh, to pull together all the uh, crew's uh, family's belongings. They'd left them there in their, in their own available hotel rooms, and... Uh, and we did everything we could to, to get ready to be able to uh, get them back to Houston as quickly as we could. And I was also communicating with the people of Houston to make sure that there was transportation and security all lines needed to take care of once they got back home. Uh, just a, a devastating time, uh, unbelievable uh, period of time. And frankly, it was one of the reasons that somewhat uh, hesitated in taking the position as the head of the immigration test office because I knew that I would be right there front and center if anything like that could happen on my very first flight serving at the past days when uh, the Columbia accident happened. 
So, so from there, uh, I did get the, the family sent off to Houston, but I didn't get to go with them because I was on a, what was called a rapid response team that had been called up, had been activated, and I had to go back to crew quarters and collect up all my clothing and belongings and pack a bag and get on to an Air Force airplane that transported us to uh, Burksdale Air Force Base from the Kennedy Space Center. And by the time I got there and got situated and got a rental car and got into a motel, it was well past midnight. Early the next morning, I went back into Barksdale and was given a team of uh, engineers. And I took them down to uh, Lufkin, Texas, where the uh, the emergency response team was being set up. And uh, I gave the uh, engineers that I brought with me my car uh, to go out and support the local authorities who wanted them to go to all of the school uh, yards in the area and to walk them down and make sure that there wasn't any hazardous materials on any of the school grounds so that they could open school on the following day, Monday. And then I spent most of the next three months there in uh, the Lufkin area helping to establish and uh, a, a, a plan and a team to recover the Columbia debris, um, develop the, the overall plan, uh, we had basically a, a small army, a small navy, and a small air force. We had helicopters and airplanes that were doing searches from the air. We had, for the most part, uh, forest uh, forestry department uh, firefighters that came in and did the ground search for us. And we also had uh, the commander of the Navy salvage came in with a small fleet of, of vessels and equipment to searched the many uh, lakes and reservoirs up in that area for debris as well. And uh, that, that was a three-month effort, and it was amazing that we were able to recover as much of the, uh, the Columbia debris as we did. Well, so I'm, I'm just sort of uh, getting my getting recollected again. Uh, wow, I, I'm, I'm just totally speechless after that. Um, on, I guess on a, on a lighter note, one of the pieces brought back was this little little polka dotted dinosaur, uh, which eventually made its way up on STS-114. Um, thinking somebody brought it over, I believe, thinking it was part of the the, the debris. My my uh, nephew wanted to know if the dinosaur ever was named at all. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it seems to me like it was, but I cannot for the life of me right now think of what the name was. <laughs> It really it became a, a mascot. Uh, down at the Kennedy Space Center, where all the Columbia debris was eventually uh, returned to, and they laid it out on this large hangar floor to try to see what they could tell by the pattern of the debris we had and what we didn't have. There was another section that was that was cordoned off, and it was limited access to crew members and some other special, specially designated people, where we put all of the crew compartment hardware equipment. And, uh, and that was where the little uh, dinosaur was uh, used as a mascot. Okay. Um, I'm going to go just fast forward slightly here uh, to the future. Uh, one of the, 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 uh, the game plans here for uh, future exploration is uh, going to an asteroid. And you write in, uh, in your book that uh, 
you see no benefit in it and it's not a good idea in your opinion it would be a waste of time and money may may I ask why i have a similar thought and i just wanted to know if if our ideas were were similar or not well uh, asteroids are a, a good thing for robots to go to and to to deal with but i don't know what you do with them once you've got them i mean why why do you want to go there i mean robots are good for that kind of thing and robots are good for uh, the precursors to going to Mars or maybe back to the moon. But an asteroid has so little gravity that you really can't stand on it, you can't work on it, you can't live on it. And, and it travels uh, in a very erratic orbit such that at some point in its travel, it's, it could be quite a ways away from the Earth. Uh, so I don't, I don't see a whole lot of reason or rationale to it. And in fact, some of the very recent studies that NASA had commissioned, they came back with the same answer, that... Uh, Nobody was really excited about it, and it wasn't really that good idea, and so, uh, you know, we ought to end the discussion there. So I just don't, the logic to me just doesn't pass a sanity check. Yeah, I, I, had, I had similar thoughts with that. Um, one of the other things, too, and you wrote a, a fantastic editorial in the Huffington Post and uh, on on the future and what's, what's going on right now, I thought, um, but you end the book rather rather ominously a little bit, saying, quote, you know, that you're very troubled about the future of our nation's space program. Uh, you know, we've, we've spent, you know, 50 years building this, this, you know, great leadership in this area. You ask, in, in, and, and this is written in italics, and this is why it, 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 it came out to me so strong. Have our dreams become too small or they've just disappeared? I mean, number one, how do you think we got here? Number two, how do we go about fixing it? Very good question. Very, very good question. It, uh, all of a sudden, it seems like NASA threw itself into reverse gear. Uh, we had some great plans. We had some great dreams. We were firing on all cylinders looking forward to uh, finishing off the shuttle program in a grand style and having the International Space Station completed. And then we were looking forward. We, NASA, the employees at NASA, were looking forward to the great challenges that lay ahead of building new rockets and capsules and getting ready to go back to the moon and to establish, um, you know, not a one- or two-day camp, but a place that we can stay there for extended periods of time and learn how to operate in that gravitational field and that environment and, and learn ways to process materials, to build structures, and to possibly be able to... Uh, Use the water ice there for our advantage, both for uh, for food and water, and uh, and also possibly for uh, manufacturing rocket propellants. Uh, all of the things that we will certainly want to and need to do uh, when we're ready to press off to go on to Mars. Um, I don't. A lot of people want to go straight to Mars. I frankly don't think that's the right idea. It's a long ways out there, and there's a lot of precursors that I think we need to do to make sure that we're ready for that. Um, we, we need to have a more robust capability for all the life support systems. Uh, we need to have them much more reliable, uh, more energy efficient, uh, that use less resupplies uh, so that we don't have to carry a whole lot of, of spare parts and things onto Mars. Uh, I really think that, that going to the moon and learning how to do all the things we just talked about there is very, very important for uh, us to be able to go on to Mars. And I don't know how to express it other than I think that when you stop growing, when you stop 
uh, exploring, that's when a society starts to decline. And I, I, I'm sorry to say, but I, I see signs of that all over the United States these days. We've lost the, the guts. We've lost the nerve. We've lost the drive. We've lost the motivation, whatever it is. And it's, it's frustrating. It's disappointing. And, uh, and we're going to uh, feel it in the pocketbook. The kinds of things that are driving our economy right now are the things that have been generated by and assisted by and pushed by the space program over the years. It's our seed corn for a future economy. If we stop growing that seed corn, we aren't going to have the kind of robust future economies that we want. And I guess there's one other aspect of it, too. I, I, maybe it's because of the time frame in which I grew up, but my, my generation was extremely fortunate to have the space race happen when it did because it really pushed education. It put money into education, put emphasis on education. Uh, but probably more important than anything else is it gave young people uh, a fascination about what they could do if they would prepare themselves in the future with the exciting things that were going to happen. And if they got a good education and they prepared themselves, they could be part of it. That's when I decided I was going to do in the fourth grade. I already made scrapbooks about flying in space and rockets and satellites before the first satellites were launched. And in fact, the first satellites were launched when I was in the fourth grade. And that's when I decided I was going to go to Purdue University, I was going to become an engineer, and I was going to get involved in our country's space program. I didn't even think about astronaut at that point because astronaut, even though the word may have been coined, wasn't used. We hadn't had any flying space yet, and we were still at the very early stages just putting satellites in space. But, but that captured my imagination, and it was, and it was the same way for many, many people in my generation. And it wasn't all about space, it was a lot, a lot of other things were occurring at the same time. But if you want to try to fix your educational system, another way to do it, or to assist it anyhow, is to give young people something that they can dream about, something that they can aspire to, and something that they can be involved in and be a productive citizen of the United States and pushing back those honors of knowledge. Sir, again, the, the, you've you've just echoed what we've been we've been discussing here on this program for for quite some time. So I, again, thank you so much for 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 saying that. Because again, I you know there, there was just an article over the weekend where uh, the European Space Agency is looking toward China possibly and maybe possibly partnering with them. So, and you do mention that risk in your book that you know we might actually lose our our leadership. You know, position here to to well, China. We're doing it. I mean, it's already happening. You can see. I mean, they're going elsewhere to look for yeah, partners. Exactly, and it's and and we should be in the forefront of this. And for some reason or other, you know, we we've lost our guts. Uh, it's important to our future, our, our economy, our educational system. I don't understand it. Uh, you're you're among friends here. Uh, my my last question I have here because I outsourced my final question um, to uh, to some to our folks over on on Facebook and Twitter and I got a, a re- response from uh, a, a lady by the name of uh, Joan Provincial Stabilia and I for, forgive me uh, for uh, mulling your your name Joan if you're listening she's a biologist and she writes that she's often wondered if astronauts suffer any long term effects from having traveled in, in space so often. She knows she's read about short-term effects and so on, but have you experienced or know of anyone? You know, I mean, I mean, you you've, you have the frequent flyer tickets, so you can probably be better equipped to answer this question. 
Um, have you had any long-term effects yourself, or observed any long-term you know effects from your uh, from your flights? Uh, I have not personally noticed any yet, and I've not had anything show up in my uh, annual physicals. I think if you're going to have uh, longer-term effects, it would be from spending longer durations in space. And we have seen some effects like that. Uh, certainly, uh, we were very uh, apprehensive about the amount of mineral, uh, mineral loss that we were seeing in the bones uh, in some of the earlier flights, like uh, Skylab. Um, but we've pretty well been able to counteract a lot of it now. We've certainly um, minimized the amount of mineral loss that the more recent crews have observed. And we've also uh, been able to prevent a lot of the, uh, the muscle mass loss that we had seen on uh, some of the earlier crews who maybe didn't exercise as much. Uh, mm -hmm. we've, we've used some pharmaceutical products, but we've also instituted, uh, I think, much better um, exercise protocols that, uh, that load up the, the structural skeleton of the body. And, uh, and the, the, we think that there's a piezoelectric effect in the crystalline structure of the bones that actually causes the, the minerals to be deposited in the bones in the first place and then causes them to stay in the, the, the skeletal structure. And by doing uh, loading up the skeletal uh, frame by doing all types of uh, a bungee list and things like that, just like you'd be lifting dead weights here on the ground, seems to counteract it and really reduce the amount of, of uh, mineral loss we've seen in the bone structure. So it's a very important analog to what people experience here on the ground, and uh, and it's uh, it's important information that potentially will be uh, of use to people who have osteoporosis and things like that. Uh, one other uh, thing that's come up relatively recently in the longer duration flyers on the International Space Station uh, is some uh, permanent, it appears, uh, loss in the visual acuity. And it doesn't happen on everybody, and uh, it's uh, more or less of a problem on certain individuals. Uh, some individuals seem to be able to have some of it uh, uh, improve after they get back on the ground, but there's some that haven't. And we're, we're trying to understand this, this new problem and trying to understand what the mechanisms are and how we can counteract it. Uh, I guess one of the most interesting and fascinating things that I learned through my spaceflight career is that many of the things that happens to a human body in zero gravity are, have analogs here on the surface of the Earth in people that are, have various different maladies. And so by studying what happens to a healthy human being in zero gravity that causes these similar symptoms or, or problems in the body, we're trying to get a better insight into what happens uh, to human beings with various different maladies here on the surface of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, we're starting to understand uh, the connections between those two, which then gives us a leg up on trying to, uh, to be able to uh, prevent and or to uh, treat those maladies and the individuals here on the surface of the Earth. So obviously then the one-year ISS flights that they're proposing will probably be helpful in assessing more long-term effects then. Absolutely. I'm sure that they're uh, visually assembling all the types of tests and, and uh, investigations that they're going to want to do on those two crew members. 
Okay, so at this point, we have reached the final question, and I consider it to be the most difficult question which we ask of all of our guests. Are you prepared to answer? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you, what you're doing, your book, is there anywhere they can go? Uh, yes, I have a uh, website, uh, www.jerryllross.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-L-R-O-S-S.com, where uh, you can see uh, a lot of what I've been doing and also I provide you with uh, where I might be in the future in terms of giving presentations or book signs. Uh, additionally, I try to keep up on the Amazon uh, book website, uh, there's an area there where you can you can find out more about the author, and and it also has a section of uh, of uh, future appearances and, and book signings. And a link to all of those for our listeners will be posted in the show notes. And I highly suggest that you go out and make this book one of your space collection because it is one of I've read pretty much all of the space uh, autobiographies out there, and this is by far one of the best I've read. So, Jerry Ross, thank you so much for joining us here on Talking Space. It's been a pleasure uh, joining you this evening, and uh, just uh, love to say again, blessings to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. We were indeed blessed and honored to have you on the show. And thank you once again for joining us, Gene McCulka. That had to be one of our finest hours, Sawyer. I, I had a grand time. It was such an honor to talk to uh, Jerry Ross tonight. Yes, it was. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. It was great to have you back. Oh, it was great to be back. It was a terrific interview. He's a, certainly a fascinating man. And hopefully we'll have you back on for more episodes this season, because we love having you oh, on. I think so. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Love the opportunity to talk to the astronauts. Appreciate you lining this up for us. Yes, indeed. It was an absolute pleasure to set it up, and it was a pleasure to have him on. And once again, his book is Spacewalker, My Journey in Space and Faith as NASA's Record-Setting Frequent Flyer, available now. Barnes & Noble's Amazon, your favorite book retailer, and we'll have a link to purchase it in the show notes, and we highly recommend purchasing it. And since this is our 150th episode, we'd like to thank you for sticking with us for 150 episodes, and here's to 150 more. But, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. 